Good evening, folks, and welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. I'm Margot McMillan, and you will hear some of our other hosts during this program. We have a really jam-packed program this evening. We're going to start out with some agriculture in the news. It has to do with TIAA, the Retirement Fund, mostly for teachers, and land grabbing in Brazil. And then we're going to move quite a bit closer to home with opponents to Cooper County CAFOs. We have a great interview with Dr. Everett Murphy regarding that situation in Cooper County. And then we're going to, of course, have a little chore of the week and uh, some music. We've got the music going right now, Curly Hardeman on fiddle. This is an older CD, but boy, it sure is a good one. We're going to listen to that a little bit, and then we'll be back. idea for farm and fiddle well I, I won't I won't even tell you what the idea is I'm just gonna play a little clip from a meeting that we had a little earlier with hosts Josh Stevens and Rhett Hartman and take one one three one two three hey Margo how's it going it's going okay it's got you know I'm having a little trouble sleeping really uh, what did you dream about last night well I guess it wasn't a nighttime dream, it was maybe a more of a daytime dream. I just, I dreamed that Farm and Fiddle was more of like a collaborative, like more voices going on. More voices? Like, what do you mean? Josh, hey, what? where'd you come from? <laughs> uh, I've been sitting here. <laughs> what do you mean? So, you know, like, well, like, everybody has kind of a little piece that they do, and we just kind of put them together every week, and, and so we get lots of voices and lots of ideas going on. Still about farming and rural life. And all the other pieces mixed together. Sustainability, environment, and forests. Love. And love. <laughs> Birds and wildflowers and cows and possibly a noisy donkey. Well, stay tuned for that. Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. KOPN, 89.5 Columbia.
and it's time for some agriculture in the news. You know, here in mid-Missouri, we believe that farmland is owned by, well, by farmers. Uh, you know, they take care of it, and they're here in mid-Missouri. We can probably find them on the phone. We, we've got their names and addresses at the county courthouse. But in many parts of the world, that's not true. And I got an email this week from Doug Hertzler at Action Aid, and it's asking us for help in saving farmland in Brazil. And here's here's the post from Doug Hertzler. He is senior policy analyst at Action Aid. Having worked all my life in farming, agricultural development, education, and social change. I know that land and water are the basis of life for communities everywhere. That's why I am alarmed that the company running my retirement fund, TIAA, is proud to be both the world's largest manager of farmland and the driver of expanding corporate ownership of land. Land should be owned, protected, and managed by local people not money managers in distant urban centers seeking profits by speculating on the increasing demand for land. For years, TIAA has tried to portray their land acquisitions as sustainable and contributing to the UN Sustainable Development Goal of Zero Hunger. But look behind the glossy brochures and you'll see a corporation pushing a trend that is devastating rural communities and the environment. TIAA, along with Harvard University, is leading investors in the process of expanding soybean production into formerly forested areas of the Brazilian state of Piauí. Both TIAA and Harvard acquired plantations from the notorious land-grabbing DiCarli family. But with increasing public pressure, Harvard is now trying to unload their land at a considerable loss. TIAA has hidden behind the claim that deforestation caused by their acquisitions in Brazil's Cerrado region is less of a sustainability problem simply because it borders the Amazon. However, these two biomes are interconnected, and agribusiness firms and their investors, such as TIAA, are destroying the most biodiverse savanna in the world, all to produce soybeans for an already overloaded market. Plantations like those that TIAA and Harvard acquired have uprooted rural communities from their woodlands and pastures and polluted their water. TIAA's farmland acquisitions are bad for farming communities in the United States as well, particularly in the South and Midwest. In 2019, The Atlantic ran a piece on the firm's large-scale acquisitions in the Mississippi Delta, a region that has yet to come to terms with its legacy of taking land from black farmers. We need to identify a way to help black farmers get back on the land just as investors are driving up the prices. When I visited several counties in Illinois at the center of TIAA's farmland acquisitions, I saw that their main practice was to buy the flattest land possible to reduce management costs for their very standard fuel and feed crops of corn and soybeans. 
It was winter and their fields were bare without any cover crop to protect the soil. Nearby towns were dotted with abandoned farmhouses and closed businesses. The University of Western Illinois had even announced it was laying off over a hundred faculty and staff due to population loss in the region. Despite overwhelming evidence, as shown by these cases, TIAA executives have refused to meet with participants over their concerns about TIAA's speculation in land. They also declined to meet with the community activists who traveled to Washington, D.C. from Piaui and has seen firsthand how TIAA is harming traditional communities. TIAA paid its chief executive $20.8 million last year. One would think that given this level of compensation and the annual opportunity for TIAA participants to vote, TIAA executives would be responsive to participants' concerns about what their pensions are funding. ActionAid is calling all TIAA participants and supporters of human rights to ask TIAA to address our concerns, to invest in solutions that support local rural communities, and to leave the land for local people. There's two ways you can act for TIAA participants. The trustees want to know if their executives should be rewarded with up to $21 million per year. Instead of commenting on their com compensation policy, demand that TIAA stops land grabbing using their advisory vote comment portal. For TIA participants and non-participants, sign a petition at actionaidusa.org. And that letter is signed by Doug Hertzler of ActionAid. We know that lots of our listeners are college folks, and uh, some, of, some of us have spent our career teaching in colleges, and we have a, and we have a definite stake in this battle. So get, a, get on to the ActionAid website, check it out, and uh, see if you want to take action. And that's our agriculture in the news. And now we're going to turn to a conversation that Josh Stevens and I had a couple of days ago with Dr. Everett Murphy, who is a pulmonologist. He practices in Kansas City. He's had 25 years, 30 years of experience as a pulmonologist. That's a lung doctor. He's been in corporate practice and in community practice. And since being in Cooper County, he has become very involved with the situation with the opponents to Cooper County CAFOs. And he's also uh, sequestered himself with his family in Cooper County since the pandemic has come. So they just go back to Kansas City to water plants, he says. But uh, here's our in interview with Dr. Murphy. Well, we became aware uh, that Pipestone, uh, which is an industrial farm, was moving into Howard County because we belong, as you know, Howard County progressives. And I didn't know what a CAFO was. I didn't even know what it stood for. And so we became um, familiar with that. Uh, and then uh, Winky told us that they were trying to come into uh, Cooper County. 
And uh, so she uh, told my wife, Corva, um, uh, that I should go to the health board because they were having trouble figuring out what to do. So uh, the health board is in Cooper County is a very, very uh, well-informed group of people, physicians, nurses, uh, auditors. And then uh, Melanie Hutton is the uh, director who is extremely uh, well knowledgeable. So maybe you could just help us and our listeners understand what is a CAFO and um, how, for what reason did it, uh, you know, maybe give us a little bit of history on, on where the community stood and, and stands now. Okay. Well, CAFO stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, essentially uh, putting a group of animals, whether it's turkeys, chickens, hogs, uh, or cattle in a confined area where they essentially don't move at all. And they're there essentially for meat production or in some cases dairy production. Uh, and the, uh, so there are some psychological effects for the animals, but the biggest problem is the, they produce a t- tremendous amount of manure and urine. And so um, then that's captured most often underneath the barn uh, or in lagoons. And then the health problems come from what happens to that manure because it's filled with bacteria, also chemicals that are fed to them, whether it's uh, hormonal uh, substances or growth hormone or antibiotics. Uh, And then the the products in the lagoon and the the bacteria grow within that environment uh, that are present within the intestinal tract of the animal. And then, those are disseminated through groundwater um, uh, dispersion or through aerosol where you see these fans on the side of these buildings or they're trying to get those chemicals and organic products out of there because they're so toxic. So that's uh, where the health hazards um, um, to the people who live within about three miles of these CAFOs, depending upon the size, are affected. So in Cooper County, go. I'm sorry, Josh, go ahead. Oh, thank you, Butch. I was just wondering if you could describe specifically what the toxins are and I will. You know, maybe tell us why they're toxic. You know, specific bacterial species and chemicals. Like which ones which ones should we be really concerned about? Right. Let's talk about the lagoons first. Um the bacteria uh then are often from the bow are called anaerobic bacteria. They grow without oxygen. And uh in the wall of this, some of those bacteria um, is a, a chemical called endotoxin. And that, uh, when inhaled, um, can induce uh, um, injury to the airways and produce uh, either asthma or people that have pre-existing lung disease like uh, emphysema or chronic bronchitis, they can become worse or just a flare-up from that. In addition, the bacteria that are in these, um, in the manure, are often uh, drug resistant because the animals are given uh, a lot of antibiotics for non-therapeutic reasons. Uh, The farmers think that it helps them to grow better, faster, bigger, healthier. Uh, But in reality, we all know that when you take an antibiotic continuously, then the bacteria are smarter than us and they become resistant to it. So then the water systems that we, uh, at least in Cooper County, many other counties uh, become contaminated with these bacteria so that when we have our wells, 
uh, were drinking, uh, potentially drinking, contaminated with the, these drug-resistant bacteria. And we've recognized the drug-resistant bacteria uh, for many, many years, uh, but it's only getting worse because of the increased number of CAFOs that are throughout the world. And so um, the only way, so often healthcare workers are, are blamed for the, uh, the overusage of antibiotics, but uh, said that 80% of drug-resistant antibiotics come from agriculture uh, and the CAFOs. So that's a real big deal because then when you go in the hospital with an infection, give you an antibiotic, it doesn't work. And that's becoming an increasing problem. Now the- Isn't, uh, isn't that banned in a lot of countries worldwide? It, ah. it, it may be in some countries in Europe. Uh, I'm not sure that in China or South America or Mexico, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't have the data on that. Uh, there's a movement in the United States among some of the big uh, uh, CAFO companies like Tyson and uh, Smithfield and uh, JBS, JBS, JBS uh, to stop using antibiotics, but it's more talk than action. Mm. Uh, they, they're, they're interest, some of them have tried to say, we're just only going to give it when there's an actual infection, but that's still a problem. Now, the uh, bioaerosols that are admitted uh, – come in the form of ammonia or nitrogen-containing compounds, um, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and then a thing called particulate matter. And uh, it, the particulate matter is the dust. And the dust that comes out of that is, uh, if it's small enough, like 2.5 microns, we actually, it bypasses all defenses in our nose or throat, and we inhale it into our lungs. And uh, these particles are very it's whatever's attached to them. It could be bacteria, it could be a chemical, it could be the endotoxin, um, but whatever this dust is carrying, then we're inhaling it and, and it's creating uh, the health problems. And these aerosols uh, can go for uh, miles, uh, just depending upon the weather conditions, the humidity, the time of day, uh, the size of the CAFO. And um, uh, so it's really uh, a big issue. In addition, uh, those bioaerosols carry what we're now seeing more and more over the last several years with SARS and MERS, these zoonotic illnesses or illnesses that are, come from animals. And these CAFOs uh, are felt to be a risk for human population uh, uh, because of breeding grounds for these illnesses. And once they mutate enough to where then it becomes human to human, not just animal to human, then we've got big problems. And so far, the COVID-19 has not been found to have a relation, to not been found to be um, a, a uh, CAFO-related illness, but I think it's only a matter of time until we start seeing more of these things. That's, yeah, and I just read a report, I just read a report the other day that uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-2, is spreading through fecal matter. It does spread through fecal matter, uh, human fecal matter. That's why when you go in often, if you're really ill, they will test your stool samples for infection. Yes. And that's why there's, there's concern about con uh, concern. Uh, I don't know that anybody's found that it's the major uh, reason for transmitting or, or spreading the illness, but it is uh, uh, found in the stool in some cases. I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that it's already – it's already evolving the COVID-2, apparently. It's, it's there's changing. Virus, it's, 
Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, I think, yeah, it's just changing its uh, genetic makeup, I guess. It's slowly morphing, or maybe quickly morphing is the right word. Well, viruses continue to mutate constantly. I mean, they're very sophisticated organisms, uh, even as small as they are uh, and simple as they are. Uh, and so they're always adapting like everything does to their environment. And uh, when they need food, then they mutate. If they can't get it one way or another, they change how they then can get nutrition from themselves. And so, uh, so they will constantly mutate, but they don't. the mutations sometimes actually cause them to um, uh, destroy themselves. Others make the, uh, them stronger, so to speak. And the, this, uh, the COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is, um, is mutating, but, but all the mutations are not necessarily bad. And the, the virologists are constantly watching that. And, and this is how they test where the virus is coming from, whether it's from Europe, China, or Brazil, or wherever it is, by their genetic makeup. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So if, if um, just talking about these uh, toxins, uh, the bioaerosols, uh, ammonia is very toxic to the airways. Um, and also if it gets in your eyes, then people have burning eyes and, and they present with burning eyes and cough. Uh, hydrogen sulfide is what we smell. And that's the odor that's so destructive uh, to people that live near these CAFOs, preventing them from getting outside trapping them essentially in their home. And so there are problems associated with um, depression and anxiety uh, when people are trapped in their homes. As we've known from our pandemic right now, just amplify that to people living near a CAFO. So most of us didn't realize the significance of that, significance of that until we were all trapped in our homes because of the pandemic. And we know all the effects. Uh, I know in our town. We also live in Kansas City. The number of murder rates have gone up because of that. It's the same problem, whether it's living next to a CAFO or having a pandemic going on. Also, it's been shown that people living near CAFOs have an elevated, have elevated blood pressure, again, just from the entrapment they have. And so there's a lot of health problems that people don't often consider as a result of this. So when there was an announcement that there would be a CAFO uh, permitted in, in Cooper County, um, tell us about how the community reacted, how it came together, and, and where you guys are now. Uh, for the most part, people like in Boonville, uh, most of them still ha- don't have a clue. Um, but when we went to the health board, then the health board became labeled as uh, tree huggers or uh, people that were just trying to cause a problem by the county commissioners in, in the city or the county. So they refused to uh, make, uh, have, consider any health uh, ordinances. And so uh, once the health department, uh, health board, made, developed their ordinances, then there was a tremendous amount of pushback from uh, those that were um, pushing for having the CAFOs some of the farmers, uh, there weren't that many of them that were interested in it, but enough to make a lot of noise. And they were supported big time by the, um, or lectured or trained in what to say uh, by these industrial farm companies, primarily Pipestone, which is out of Wisconsin. And uh, it's interesting when we talk to people in other parts of the state, we ask them what kind of pushback and what information was used to push back, it was the same script no matter where you went, they all said the same thing. They were handed 
so to speak, a script, and this is what they said. You're ruining our world. You're not letting us make money. You're ruining our family. Uh, we want to feed the we need to get meat to China, pork to China, they're starving, et cetera, et cetera. It was just amazing, um, no matter who you said, who's heard it from. So anyway, there was a lot of, um, so, so there was a lot of pushback, again, uh, kind of by a small group. Um, and then they convinced about 100 farmers to sign in on a lawsuit saying that they didn't want to have the health board trying to regulate them. Most of them probably didn't have a clue what they were signing, but they went ahead and signed that. So that's what prompted a lawsuit within the county. So there was a mixed bag. There's a lot of farmers who were against it, family farmers, and there was a lot of farmers that were some farmers that were for it, most of them interested in uh, the corporate type uh, farming. So when you have uh, gatherings where some of these farmers who are pro-CAFO come to your meetings, do you, do they have any um, sense about the health, the health uh, implications that you've been talking about? No, well, they, they, they may have a sense, uh, but they choose to ignore it. Uh, in other words, their priorities are elsewhere, so they'll, they'll, they can't talk about it because they're not, they may have fallen asleep during that lecture, no. uh, but they, uh, they just essentially choose to be ignorant of it. And it's just all about making money and not being told what to do. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a libertarian approach oh. uh, about this. They, uh, they're pushing, as, the, as our Governor Parson is doing and others, uh, for uh, having a state that's ag-ready. And you'll see signs around saying, we're ag-ready. And the way they become ag-ready is if, they have abs if there's absolutely no health regulations that can be imposed upon an industrial farm. And once, because once there's any health regulations, uh, then the uh, big companies don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's why Howard County, who was successful, their commissioners allowed, uh, and even had a, a, a countywide vote, allowed for there to be health ordinances there. And so they are not held that great. Cooper County, signs are going up all over uh, by um, that, that we're ag ready, but but that's kind of a false impression because right now our regulations are still um, present. They've not been uh, taken away from us. Mm -hmm. County and uh, Jeff City, where Jeff City is, is ag ready, and so this is something that that's very very important to these people because they see financial gain. They don't realize even the ones that want to participate individually as an individual farmer don't realize that there's very little financial benefit to them, to the county. They don't increase tax revenues. They force people out of the area because they can't stand to live there. Uh, and so their tax base drops off uh, for property taxes and they, they don't understand that. There's, it's all about uh, personal satisfaction and greed. That's the way I see it. listening to Farm and Fiddle on KOPN 89.5 FM. And this is a conversation with 
Dr. Everett Murphy, who is a pulmonologist from the Kansas City area who is now living in Boonville. He practiced for many years in corporate medicine and in community practice as a pulmonologist, which is, of course, a lung doctor. Since coming to Boonville, he has been involved with opponents to Cooper County CAFOs, which is a group that passed a health ordinance a couple of years ago and then found that the state legislature passed a law to ban health ordinances. And we've talked about this quite often on Farm and Fiddle. It's known as Senate Bill 391. And it has affected quite a few counties that had health ordinances in place. And, and health ordinances basically put a few regulations in place for the health of the citizens when a factory farm moves in. Right now, the opponents to Cooper County CAFOs is in a lawsuit and our conversation turned to catching up on what's happening with that lawsuit. Well, the original uh, lawsuit, uh, Cedar County Commissioners and Cooper County Health Board, and then some plaintiffs, um, we talked about them were suing uh, the governor and the Clean Water and Air Commission. And what that, what happened was the Senate Bill 391 said that um, uh, a local community, uh, like a county, cannot pass any regulations to set ordinances that are uh, in conflict uh, with the state. Well, we recognize the state had no ordinances for hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and other toxins, and so we were not out of compliance with that. So we passed our original ones, uh, then they were modified to a second health regulation. So in addition, the Senate Bill, our, our attorneys then recognized that Senate Bill 391 was in conflict with a law that was passed last year called the right to farm. As much as we hated that, the right to farm said that we could, that county commissions and health boards could make health regulations as long as they were not in conflict with the DHSS or Department of Human Health Services. And then secondly, the legislation said that they could nullify any pre-existing regulations as well, which we said that's not right. And so that's where the lawsuit went. And then it went to the circuit judge, uh, Judge uh, Green, and the attorney general's office Attorney Justin Smith then was representing the Attorney General and the Governor's office, and uh, we went through that action in February. I was deposed as, long as, as well as other people, and the judge was taking it under consideration. But because of the uh, pandemic, things got delayed, and so uh, our attorney um, uh, then with the governor's statements saying that he wanted everything to be local control, he didn't want to do anything at state level with reference to the COVID-19 issues, then we said, wait, you can't have it both ways. Either we do have health regulations locally or we don't. And so that prompted the, our attorney to go back to the Judge Green, which was recently done, and then the attorney, Justin Smith, for the Attorney General's office, and asked for uh, allowing us to uh, uh, provide more information and to be considered. Well, the um, 
attorney for the attorney general's office didn't uh, didn't like that and made a motion that would prevent us from providing new information. But the judge went in our favor and said, look, I'll throw out everything you've said in the past. You can resubmit it with new information. And our attorney said, fine, we'll do that. The attorney for the attorney general's office, Justin Smith, said, we're going to leave it as the way as the way uh, um, it, it was or what we've already presented. And then so that's I think it's July 12th. They uh, we have to submit our information um, for the judge to review. So that went a bit in our favor, although we're not holding our breath on that because uh, uh, it's an election this year and some of the judges are affected. Certainly they're just human by, uh, by uh, the election and how they, what they, the decisions they make. So we'll see. We hope that he'll be fair. So uh, one of the things that, has been interesting about this whole pattern is that there are different situations now with the COVID um, where counties really would like to be able to protect their, their constituents. They, I, I know some counties or some cities have passed uh, mask ordinances so that in some cities you even, um, you know, may, might pass a sign as you enter the city that says this city, well, Denver, Colorado is one that I heard of just the other day. Um, this city requires masks. So you drive into Denver, you put a mask on or you get one close to you so you can put it on if you get out of the car. Um, so it's these local local municipalities and, and counties want to be able to Past things and and is there is there some kind of a conflict that you see between not allowing health ordinances and then and allowing health ordinances and for different for different uh, reasons how how is this shaken out? Well, I I think the conflict is we have very poor leadership, no leadership, and so then it's left to each county or each health board or each city or each community to invent the wheel, you know. Uh, instead of having something that's uh, well-directed from the top, then everybody's having to decide what to do. And that causes a lot of confusion for the public because they're not really sure they have the governor saying one thing and then the mayor of a town saying another thing. The medical director at the state level not being well-informed and then a very well-informed city uh, medical director. And uh, even Cooper County, Melanie Hutton is extremely well-informed. So people don't know who to trust. And so they don't trust anybody. So uh, I think that's the, the, a real dilemma that is just the fact of life right now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, so in some states, they have good leadership at the state level. But uh, say like New York, or as, any perfect, as a great example. Um, but uh, in, in Missouri, we don't. So it's up to the Melanie Huttons or the uh, people, Rich Archer in Kansas City, to... Uh, um, tell their leadership what they need to do. And some listen well and some don't. And we found out the problems when they don't listen, <laughs> then we got more problems. Mm -hmm. uh, so now in Cooper County, we're not, we've not had too many cases, hardly any cases, but there hasn't been a lot of testing because the governor and, or the health director um, uh, has not thought that rural people need to be tested. It should be limited to large cities. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a problem because then we don't really know what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So July 12th is the date when all of the information will be to the court. 
correct. Do we have a date? Do we know of a date when we will hear a decision? Uh, I, I know very little about how courts work, but I was told by Steve Jeffrey, our attorney, that you never know. It's whenever they get around to it. And that with the pandemic, things have been slowed down considerably. Mm -hmm. So we don't know whether it'll be this year or next year or what. Um, the fact that it, it delays, it helps us in one sense uh, because it's keeping um, the uh, capo from coming into our county. Mm -hmm. But it really needs to be decided at a state. I mean, this will have impact all over the state uh, if, if, we, if we win this suit. Um, uh, because of, uh, of Senate Bill 391 and the governor's inaction. Well, I was thinking about, you know, just what you described of lack of poor leadership. And there's some individuals out there that are really educated. Um, what, so I'm thinking of our listeners and I'm thinking of how, you know, it seems like there's just not enough people that understand and expressing their concern. So where can our listeners go learn more about this that, that they could then take to their county leaders or whoever and help educate those folks. You mean in reference to the CAFOs or the pandemic or which? Yeah, the, the CAFOs, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and uh -huh. just the, the toxins and the limits that need to be put on, on to, to protect community health. Well, in Cooper County, our, our, our county health board um, has that information readily available for anybody who wants to write them and ask them or email them to provide them with it. And actually, our lawsuit sets those, the lawsuit uh, in Cooper County and to the circuit judge uh, sets those, our, our, reg, our health regulation uh, sets the limits on those that are thought to be the minimal risk levels uh, where a person shouldn't uh, become ill. Uh, so I think that's the first place. If I was, uh, that's when I have a question, I usually write Melanie Hutton and ask her what's going on, what what's the latest information. There are other sites, though. The um, uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Liv a Livable Future is quite involved in CAFOs nationally and internationally, and so that's a resource that I use. A fellow named Bob Martin is one of their people there. They were supposed to have a, a national meeting in November in Kansas City and part of it dealing with CAFOs and in November, as I mentioned, but I'm not sure what's happened with that now with the pandemic and I've not heard recently. So uh, that's another source. Um, if they just go online, uh, put in CAFOs health hazards, there's uh, the CDC has uh, recommendations. Uh, some of them are a bit old, but there's a lot of information just online. If they just put in CAFOs, health hazards, toxins, those things will bring up information. Some of them are pretty technical, but what they'll get a feel for is this is not a new problem. The CAFO issues have been around for now three decades, and there's a lot of science uh, involved, uh, and more and more, and it's because of our communication. And China has a big, big problem with CAFOs. They've lost uh, thousands and thousands of swine because of the swine fever that was invested in, into their uh, CAFO uh, um, system. And, uh, and so there's a lot of research coming out of China as well. <laughs> um, no, I mean, just uh, people need to vote and get rid of some of these idiots at the top. And there are plenty of opportunities to get good people in that are running, that are knowledgeable, good leaders. They're not trying to just ignore or defer things. We need to get people in leadership. 
we need a leader. Locally, nationally, state level, all levels. And there are plenty of people that are extremely good running. I mean, it's really exciting to, to get them into the, in those positions. Well said. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, Josh, anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? Uh, thank you, Butch. I really appreciate all the information you've shared. It's very helpful, and I, I think I'll probably use this as a springboard to learn more. Great. Thank you. It's good to be with both thank of you. Thank you. Okay. I will thank do you, it. Butch. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. was a conversation with Dr. Everett Murphy, who has been living in Boonville and his, uh, has been working with the opponents to Cooper County CAFOs. So he was talking about some of the lawsuits that they've been involved in. Uh, we'll try to keep up with that situation. And if you want to keep up with it, you can get on the mailing list you can send an email to suzyq65025 at yahoo.com. And I'll spell that out for you. S-U-S-I-E-Q 65025 at yahoo.com. That'll get you up to date with the opponents of Cooper County CAFOs. And uh, there's another really good website you might check out. Um, this is a, a Facebook page for Friends of Responsible Agriculture. And the woman who keeps that page going keeps up with all the lawsuits that are going on around the state. For general background information, you might check out kfozone.com. As Dr. Murphy pointed out, there are numerous websites and articles regarding the health hazards of concentrated animal feeding operations. Well, we just have a few minutes left and I am delighted because I have this kind of secret project going on and I'll have I'll have time here to play a little bit of it. I've been asking people what they have learned during this time of sequestration. And I started this weeks ago, but just haven't had a chance to, to play any of it. So I'm going to start with, I think this was the first interview I did. This was uh, an interview with Walter Bargan, who is a poet, many people know him. He lives down around the Ashland area. And uh, he had some real thought-provoking ideas. So let me just ask you the question that I've been asking everybody. And that, that is, what, what would you say you've learned in the last uh, two months? 
I guess it's been two months now. Any, I mean, anything? Oh gosh. Well, I, to some degree, um, I've learned a, a few things. Uh, maybe I haven't really learned them, I've experienced them. I don't know if experiencing them is the same as learning them. One is living out in the country um, is an isolated life to begin with. And, um, you know, I, I live on 11 acres, but um, which isn't that much. But still, you know, everyone, pretty much everyone I know lives in town, in Colombia. And so uh, living out here has become even more isolated. Mm. And that that can be, um, you know, a good thing in a time like this. But at the same time, it also um, requires uh, me to be more creative or more attempt to be more open to trying new things in order to bridge that isolation without actually coming in contact with people. So, but I, I think that uh, watching how crazy everything has become um, socially, politically, economically, um, that really we take civilization for granted and that civilization is actually a pretty thin veneer and how easy that veneer peels back and cracks and that we ought to probably do a much better job of taking care of it and appreciating it and making sure that we are able to take care of everyone and not just limited groups or small groups which are really large groups when you think about the population and and also how um, the the pandemic has uh, exposed probably uh, more harshly and more and more broadly than most people are willing to admit or recognize the inequities that exist in the society. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a lot to think about. Year, but you know, every year my garden gets smaller. And that was Missouri poet Walter Bargan. Uh, I did ask him for some poetry, and I got some wonderful poetry from Walter. I won't try to play that to tonight. But we will have that on another program, and, and I will invite you, listeners, if you have been writing poetry during this time, uh, boy, I sure would like to do a, a program completely on poetry. Uh, but in the meantime, last week, Saturday, I took my microphone down to the farmer's market in Fulton, Missouri, and I asked some of the vendors there, what have you learned? in the last few months. Hi, my name's Michelle with Fulton Farmers Market. We live, live in Centralia, Missouri. Um, a little bit about what we have learned is the, the 
what we market for for our produce is highly respected and people have a high demand for it um, another thing that we have learned is personally when we when this came about and the lockdown and the COVID started we were able to secure enough meat for us and it was fortunate that um, we were able to get our hogs and our beef and we've been able to get those butchered and have in our freezer so um, learning how to be economically wise and safe practices has been a has definitely we've definitely learned from that thank you you're welcome i just ask you to say your name and then sure. um what hi there i'm jim ewing we, my wife and I, we have a small farm here in Fulton called Maple Lane Farms. We grow uh, naturally raised, organically fed chickens, and that's why we're here at the farmer's market. And Becky's got some jewelry and some cards and stuff. But with the virus, we're, we're just glad that the market is open and people are out and about and people are taking a lot of precautions to uh, stem the spread. But uh, it has been fun just to interact with folks, as always. Well, I'm Lisa Swartwood and I'm part of Fulton Farmers Market and one thing that we've noticed this year is that people are really eager to get out about and we've had our best year this year and several of the other farmers have indicated that their, their sales are up too so and we get hit pretty hard first thing in the morning so you guys are here Saturdays from uh, 9 to noon? Actually, this year it's 8 to noon. We've started early. Our banner still says 9, but it's kind of hard to change a banner. That's are a, you Wednesdays? Not yet, but we will be. We had to change where we were coming because Tractor Supply had said they didn't want us setting up there because of the virus issue so we had to find another place and not everywhere has the room or the you know space or uh, because of the traffic or whatever and so um, we will be starting at Boyd and Boyd on Wednesdays but not yet they still have some stuff to finish up but hopefully before long and that'll be what time it should be between three and six the, t the time should unless there's some other issue that's what time we normally would do Wednesday markets is from three to six. Thank you, Lisa. Sure, no problem. And so as if to underline the fact that our farmers are amazingly resilient, I was able to catch a little bit from Liz Grasnack who sells at the Columbia Farmers Market. What have you learned in the last, what, three months? Oh, that I am capable of so much more than I thought that I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh like my gosh. It. Yeah. It's, it has been a wild and crazy spring. <laughs> yeah. What's been the most interesting part? Um, trying to shift my sales model, I guess. Oh. Um, yeah, trying to um, like pivot to try to figure out a way to make up 
massive lost revenue from the farmer's market oh. and, you know, how, what to do with all the produce that was ready in March and April and May and how to, how to keep, you know, income coming in because major bills were going out. I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's been the most challenging, I think. Um, on top of that, I have a lot of new staff. I mean, they're all really awesome uh, people, but we have more staff than I've ever had. And many of them are brand new, never worked on a farm before. And so there's lots and lots of training and um, yeah, just there's so much to know for a new person. And um, that on top of trying to figure out a whole new system of, um, of how to sell, sell stuff. Uh, it's been, it's been a wild ride, Margo. <laughs> well, bravo for you for getting it, getting it even this far. I, I'm, I'm, uh, as always, impressed by your time for chore of the week we have just just enough time to squeeze in a chore you know if you have any berry plants at all on your place and I mean blueberries blackberries or any kind of wild blackberries this is the time to harvest so you can just get out there you can spend hours and hours picking blackberries right now I am here to tell you and what I like to do with the blackberries once I've gotten them in in the house and pick them over a little bit, freeze them for winter time. They're great in smoothies or they're great in cobblers, that kind of thing in the, in the dead of winter. And they've got tons of vitamins and minerals, of course. So lay them out in a single 
a single layer on a cookie sheet and you can freeze them hard and then pop them off and put them into a freezer bag or a freezer container of some kind and save them for winter and you'll have wonderful blackberries for your cobblers or smoothies any way you want to use them all winter long so that's the chore of the week and of course we will have another chore for you next week And as a final note, we have been listening to the wonderful fiddle music of Curly Hardeman throughout this program. So we'll have more music for you next week. Thanks for listening.